from India's largest newsroom, I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. No country deserves this fate, but particularly no countries like Pakistan that have done almost nothing to contribute to global warming. I know what it means for the Pakistani people, this unprecedented natural disaster. That's UN Secretary Antonio Guterres speaking after assessing the situation in Pakistan on Friday, the 9th of September. Over 1,300 people have died so far due to the floods in Pakistan. Nearly 5 crore people are believed to have been affected. In an episode last week, we'd spoken with Pakistani climate change expert Ali Sheikh, who had explained how this year's floods were unlike anything seen in the past. Dr. Geet Chainani is an Indian-American doctor who will be in Pakistan by the end of the month to assist with flood relief. In today's episode, she explains why she's expecting to see things far worse than she's ever seen. Dr. Geet was in Pakistan on a personal visit during the devastating 2010 floods. She ended up helping with flood relief work and started an NGO to help those affected. She then ended up staying in Pakistan for another three years. She's headed there again at the end of the month to help with flood relief. In today's episode, the New York resident talks about the problems the flood affected will face and why the focus must remain on helping those affected for some time to come. Dr. Geet, you've worked with flood relief in Pakistan in the past. Um, you're headed there again later this month. Could you explain the biggest problems you've seen in Pakistan at these times? That's such a loaded question. The biggest problems that I have seen is, I think at this point, would be the size of the devastation. It is definitely larger than what I experienced in 2010. Again, I'm far away. I'm not there. If it's completely my opinion, I'm not, I'm not quoting anything, but from what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing from the ground, it looks like double the devastation of 2010. Um, the challenges that we face, okay, let's see. So water everywhere, stagnant water everywhere. Um, we have problems getting to where we need to be. Um, we have problems getting the things that we need. Um, these are because of the damage to infrastructure. So the damage is um, devastating, to say the least, because in 2010 it was bad and now it's worse. Stagnant water causes disease like wildfire. The concern is the control of mosquitoes and and mosquito-related illnesses like dengue, malaria. Um, That's really concerning. There are photos that are coming out on social media that don't look good, you know, so it's not setting a good ground reality for what to expect um, going into it. And then, of course, the level of, of disease when you get on the ground. Um, it's also kind of a big risk for us ourselves, too, when we're going into places like that. I guess you can say we're very uh, weak Americans. <laughs> So we don't we don't have wonderful immune systems. So when we get on the ground, we have a lot of stuff to deal with in that way as well. Plus, COVID is still a very big reality. There's a lot of roadblocks, a lot of challenges as we're approaching this right now. Um, still trying to get your hands on the basic 
stuff that we need, like mosquito nets, tents, medicines. Um, I'm getting quite a bit of a good response as far as mes- medicines are concerned, but mosquito nets and tents, I mean, all the NGOs are placing the orders for these things. They're not being able to find, the, find them on the ground and because it's already been exhausted, whatever I guess they had in the country. So now they're having to seek it outside and then there's a, there's a lag time to that. We do, while we're waiting, these people are still sleeping under the open sky, you know. What is it that professionals like you end up having to do over there when you're there? We bring a certain level of expertise, right? Um, on the ground, realities are very different. I mean, each country has its own limitations. They have um, their infrastructure as far as healthcare infrastructure. How is it when it's, we're operating on a, normal, on a normal level? Is it meeting 100% of the need? Probably not, right? And in, in, a, in, a, in a natural disaster like this, fractures that it breaks it it puts so much pressure on on the on the healthcare infrastructure inside that i think it's necessary for people outside of that like we need to go there we need to be on the ground now if you ask me what what we do will we go into the ground you know we go where where we're needed the most we find areas where people can't reach healthcare facilities or the healthcare facilities in that neighborhood are inundated and we go and we bring the healthcare to them um one factor that's always highlighted is the fact that you were born in India. Um, mm. Could you explain how you ended up going to Pakistan in 2010 and were there subsequent trips after that? So I went in 2010 more on a kind of personal journey. This may sound cliche, I guess. I had just graduated med school and I was going through some crisis of self and I wanted to find who I was, where I come from, things like that. And so I started reading a little bit about sin, and I had always grown up with stories from my grandmother. And I, and I had recently lost my grandmother at that point, too. In 2007, she had passed away. And the loss of my grandmother was palpable for me at that time. So much of Sindh being a part of your day-to-day and not knowing what that place is, is kind of disconnected. So that's why I went back. It, everything happened at the same time. The 2010 floods also happened at the time okay. that I went there. Okay. And I found myself in a situation where I was connecting with people on the language because I'm fluent in Sindhi. Mm. So I actually ended up staying there for three years. This time as well, when she lands in Pakistan, Dr. Geet's efforts will be focused on the Sindh region. In 2010, Dr. Geet ended up working in the Sindh province where she had gone to meet family members. She says it helped that she spoke the language and could talk to people. Was the fact that you're Indian or Indian born uh, ever a problem for you? In the first moment that I applied for the visa, they just kind of looked at me a little funny, like, Why, what are you going there to do? But once I said I was, you know, my roots are Sindhi and I wanted to go and check out Sindh. I wanted to go see what it's about. And they were like, uh, okay, top, top, go, have fun. So... I actually had a little bit more problem from India <laughs> than I did from Pakistan because I had to do a re-entry into India in order to go to Pakistan. So I went to them to get the re-entry permit and they saw the Pakistani visa and they got really mad at me. Dr. Geet says that after assisting with emergency relief, she began to work on addressing more chronic problems in the health sector in the region. She explains what she saw happen with the flood affected in 2010 after the rescue operations ended and why she's afraid it might happen again. When you get involved in emergency relief or the NGO sector, 
the natural progression of things goes like, okay, I'm doing rescue right now. And now once we phase out of rescue, we go into relief, which is all immediate acute problems. But as you're working in an immediate acute environment, you start to realize the chronic issues. And slowly, slowly, like I started working on immunization campaigns. I started working on maternal and child health, dabbled a little bit in nutrition. Me and my partner pinpointed hepatitis being a, a prevalent problem. And we wanted to work more on hepatitis, like infectious diseases. Could you explain what are the things that happen post these floods, which kind of get ignored because the immediate focus is that immediate relief in a sense? There is so much. I mean, there's there's the destruction of livelihood. There is the destruction of nutritional content. Like they don't have access to the kind of foods that, let's say, a major metro city does. So they they exist primarily on foods that they can farm, crop that they raise themselves, and anything that they can barter. And anything in the neighborhood is all destroyed. So it's a very large um, endeavor to take this on. It's the healthcare issues that that come up after that. Some places they talk about this, but in 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 dire situations, people miss out the psychological trauma that occurs from things like this, the long-lasting devastation, depression that comes from the devastation, the anxiety that comes from the devastation, and the, and the loss of their li- livelihoods, the loss of their homes, the children that get very, very sick, that they have to like nurse back to health. I mean, this is, these are all very traumatic situations. So most people are always worried about disasters in an acute phase. And then after a while, you start talking about things like donor fatigue. If you look at it from the relief and reco- rescue and relief phase, that's an adrenaline rush. And you're in there and you're doing the work and you're going, 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 and you start to get exhausted in month three. And that's when your interest starts to die out too. Big thing that kept coming up was donor fatigue, donor fatigue, donor fatigue. And it's like, we can't get fatigued right in the beginning. These people are gonna be at it for the next 10 years. And I understand that we can't say that we're gonna be working with them for the next 10 years, I get that. But we also can't expect people to stand up back on their feet when they've lost a year of livelihood, when they have to wait for the land to be cultivatable. It's going to take them time because that's completely flood inundated. So those are things that, that get highlighted later. Those are the things that I saw. Like sitting in a first world country looking at things like this happening when we we're just like, why can't they just get off their butts and start working? You know, we say a lot of that garbage. And it's, it's actually a place of entitlement that we're coming from because we have no idea what, what it's like to walk a day in their shoes. And I guess um, a few of us get to see that. It's not just about, let me get them out of the drowning water right now. Oh my God, people are dying high, high because they're drowning in the floods. It's also, oh my God, what about the loads of numbers of people that are dying after the flood, after you've rescued them, but they don't have anything to eat. Six months later, they're dying because malnutrition kills very slowly over a long period of time. And all of the other things that result from that, like pregnancy-related issues, maternal-related issues, there's a lot of different things that come into light after devastations like these. I was reading an interview where you'd spoken of how, at the time, that Haiti was sort of a high-focus area for the U.S. well after the devastation there, whereas something like Pakistan was forgotten much sooner. Uh, Do you think that's changed? No. 
Not at all. That's actually happening right now. But Ukraine war has gotten $40 billion of funding. Pakistan just got $30 million. That's not even 50 cents per affected person. So in that way, if you look at it, uh, no, I don't think Pakistan gets highlighted enough at all. I don't think it gets the, the, the aid that it needs. Um, a, lot of, a lot more is needed internationally. Um, they're talking about numbers like $10 billion of, of, of destruction. So if that's the case, what is $30 million in that? Like a drop? And I know America's not responsible for that. Um, I know that everybody has to kind of come together and do it, but it's not getting the um, airtime. There was a big, uh, oh my God, oh my God, all over Twitter with Pakistan flood hashtags and Pakistan floods 2022. But if you see, it's kind of like dying down already. And it's not even two weeks old, I feel. Dr. Geet says she tried to set up an NGO in India in 2012 because she and her family keep traveling to Mumbai. She had participated in medical camps in India, offering medical treatment for free before her work in Pakistan. However, she was dissuaded after she learned of the norms that would prevent her from working directly in India. The first thing I was told was that it's exorbitantly expensive, which is whatever. It would have been secondary. I would have done it anyway. But the other thing that the lawyer told me was that they're not handing them out right now. They're not letting you open NGOs. You're going to have to partner with an existing organization. But that doesn't help me work there. That just makes it so that I'm doing something remotely, right? I want to be the one coming in and doing the work. The experts we spoke with in our previous episode on Pakistan's floods had said that India and Pakistan would do well to cooperate in the realm of climate change. Dr. Geet agrees and says that Pakistan would benefit greatly from greater trade and working with India. I'm not sure of the political sphere of India and Pakistan. And my message has always been that we're really not that different. Um, and we really should be doing a better job of getting along because if we did, things would be a lot better. If we could all get along and have some kind of a trade system, some kind of access to like medicines, like in Pakistan, for example, it's not common for people to do transplant surgeries. And lives can be saved if there was cross-border healthcare. So that would be my closing statement if I had to make one. I would like to say that I wish the Indian subcontinent would get along better. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe, and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas, and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at toipodcast at timesinternet.in.